there. Welcome to Motorcycles and Misfits. <laughs> Coming to you from the Cycle Garage here in sunny Santa Cruz, yes, California. Yes, yes, yes. yes Halloween yes. edition. It is a Halloween edition. Oh, yeah. oh spooky. Oh, you know who visited us today? A spook. Bosley, the ghost of Bosley. Dukaki Dave came by. <laughs> did he? No, no, he, he did. Yeah. No, uh, it, it wasn't, and it I wasn't. felt a little bad because I'm like, do you guys remember this guy? <laughs> this is Dukati Dave. And he goes, Dukaki. I was like, oh, he knows. He I guess it. he knows we call him that. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, yeah, what I was he riding? Uh, a Porsche. No, he's uh, a Mercedes. No, he's a Mercedes, oh, he's a Mercedes Benz AMG. Uh, he traded his oh Diavel for two jet skis. There you go. But now he's flipping KTMs for a living. I kid Did he move you to not. Florida too? No, no. <laughs> Sacramento. <so this laughs> was bad. Uh, well, jet skis is an unusual market for, you know, Sacramento. <laughs> I know. Got the Delta. Hi, everyone. This is Liza joining me on the Classy Girl Couch tonight. It's Miss Emma. Hello, darlings. Here I am. Is that Fritz the cat on the, on your shirt? No, it's Felix. Oh, Felix. I thought it was Fritz. No, if it was <laughs> if it was Fritz, he'd be smoking a joint and in bed with a hippie cat. Yes. Yeah. And uh, filling in tonight our stunt misfit since Stumpy John is still out of town. We have Patrick. Poutine Patrick, apparently. Oh, yes. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Well, I've been going to Canada. We got the poutine pussy, and then you know, here we are. Poutine patch. Oh, my. <laughs> you know you like racing. it. That got weird. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sitting in his new chair... It's Naked Jim. Hey, what's happening? You're I sitting You're sitting very upright and correct, I love Jim. the chair. It's no, is, is, is it ergonomically appropriate? Uh, it's ergonomically way more better, I'll tell you that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah nice and cushy, and they're little, they, there's no wheel. Well, I had the one chair for a while that had yeah. three of the four wheels. That was always interesting. <laughs> I wanted to mention that Liza said, look, before you go into the studio, you need to know. I've done a major upgrade. And of course, you know, it went in one ear and out the other. But I walked in. This is this place has had a major upgrade. Seating is better. And I cleaned. I and you cleaned. Down, you cleaned all, all my cans candy. Cans and, and, and candy wrappers. Half, mm-hmm. half drunk gin and tonic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, a big shout out to Mike Beck, who's in town. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Coolest guy oh, I know. Oh. Yeah, man. He was on his uh, his motorbike today. The Royal Oil Field. Yep, yeah. It is meatier than the others. And we were out for some good Mexican food the other night. He played in Carmel. I missed it. I'm bummed. Yeah, you should be. It was a great show. Mm. And joining us from his garage in Oregon, it's Bagel. Greetings to all the ghouls out there. <laughs> oh, groovy ghoulies. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> to all the goons. Um, so right off the bat, I want to give uh, an update. Our 500th episode is coming along. Jim, you got a little sneak preview. Emma hasn't seen it, so. I did, yeah. You got the, a little sneak preview. I'm, I'm, it, the, the production value is high. Really? Yes. Yeah, good production value. Yeah. We're, I'm putting together a whole- You rented a theater, for God's sake. I rented a theater. I know. Um, but uh, yeah, just to, to clarify, this is open to the public. You just have to go to our website, motorcyclesandmisfits.com. Click the link to uh, reserve your tickets- to our event and uh, come see us record our 500th episode. But also, that that is going to be Saturday evening. Jim, what is happening Saturday day? This, but wait, this there's is a, more. This is a two-day event. It's a twofer. 
Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to do a, a little group ride and, uh, you know, nothing too fancy, but the more the merrier. And myself and I think Matt uh, from Law Tigers, breaking away, Matt, mm-hmm. uh, may help Shepard. And we'll do a little four, maybe around a four hour ride uh, and just see some of the beautiful landscape in southern Santa Cruz and northern Monterey County. And maybe a little ride to food. You know, we don't want to spend too much time in the parking lot eating french fries or whatever. But um, but we made uh, a couple of stops. One will probably stop for some lunch or a little something to take a break. And then we're also stopping in PG. Stopping. Stopping. It's a (laughs) stopping. Yeah, and I think we may uh, swing by the museum down in Pacific Grove. I think what I'll do is maybe create an event on our Facebook page for that so we have an idea. But uh, the ride is going to be meeting here at the Recycle Garage at 11 a.m. on Saturday, December 3rd. And we'll bring everyone back into town in time to change and get ready for the big gala event at the theater. Yeah, and I, what I'm thinking is we'd do, you know, meet at the garage 11, kickstands up 11.30, good four hours on the bike, and maybe when we come back, we'll find a place for a little social hour yeah. in between the that ride would, that would be and, nice. the, uh, and the podcast. And we, we could do a nice dress-up event in the cinema. You know, the um, the boys can wear cocktail dresses and the women can wear tuxes. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love it. But it'd be kind of fun, so I figured yeah. you know, we could do a little social hour before the podcast for people, if you have time after the ride, or if you didn't do the, do the ride, but you want to hang out and have a little yeah for people coming greet. from out of town yeah but it, that's not it we're also gonna do an open house on sunday here at the garage and bring out the barbecue grill and are there gonna be cheesy filled sausages oh yeah that's some oh. good stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's uh-huh. good stuff. there's nothing i love more I, oh god than a cheesy bavarian <laughs> 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 I think Bagel has that accent. Which, which should be, yeah, Bagel's other nickname, Cheesy Bavarian. Um, Are you heading south yeah. for this bagel? Oh, yeah. I'll be coming down. You awesome. better. Well, you better, you oh, yeah. better, you bet. And also, do you know who else is coming for this? I do, but I don't want to say. I, I'm going to say it. That, way, that way he's locked in. Phil from Cleveland Motors yeah. coming out. He's going to be oh, one of our nice. guests. Yeah, yeah, that'll be super fun. Exactly. And yeah, and other podcast listeners have been dropping notes and saying they're coming. And um, yeah, we may even do a little. I don't know. I'm thinking about taking that Friday off and do some more writing. I don't make it a three day event. I know a three (laughs) for. That might be fun because I'm going to be busy all weekend Mm, buying Um, sausages. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Probably, I need to do a ride to buy some sausages. So come to our 500th episode party on december 3rd again go to motorcycles and misfits.com and you can register there and emma i yes. have some i have some good news for you you do yeah yeah so we have a sponsor uh for this for the show tonight I know. and it's somebody who you're very fond of i am very fond of our friends mimi and moto are back well oh, nice yeah. yeah, Mimi and Moto, who were created by Nancy and Mark. So, before you go on, I wanted to say, you know, I've seen their books around when we were at Gilroy um, yes. Motorsports. I saw their book on the counter, and I mm-hmm. thought that was really cool. So, cool. I'm I'm great. I'm glad they're doing a lot of good things. Yeah. So, um, Christmas holidays are approaching, and it's time to start thinking about getting some presents for the children. Or the young at heart. I wish I knew what to get this year. Well, (laughs) I'm going to answer that for you. Our friends, Nancy and Mark, creators of Mimi and Moto, want you to join their mission to get more children excited about motorcycles. 
go visit www.mimianmoto.com. That is M-I-M-I-A-N-D-M-O-T-O dot com where you can purchase the couple's motorcycle books. And there are plenty of them. The Adventages of Mimi and Moto and Mimi and Moto Ride the Alphabet, along with T-shirts, onesies, ornaments, and other paraphernalia. And my screen's gone blank. Help! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love Mimi and Moto. And they've added all this new clothing and stuff. Plushies. So stay tuned as Nancy and Mark are working on a new chapter book called Mimi and Moto's Magical Meteors First Gear, which will be released early in 2023. So visit Mimi and Moto today and get some Christmas shopping done that will help create future motorcycle riders. Now, as you probably figured out, I read that, but the slight difference is we had Nancy and Mark in the studio here. They are great people. They're very, very passionate about motorcycles. And I know you've bought their books. Oh, absolutely. Um, I bought, I was a very, very early um, buy-in of their books. And I'm actually, I'm on the back page of sponsors in uh, Mimi and Moto Ride the Alphabet Mm. because I believed in this product. Nice. I mean, we've really got to, as responsible bikers, we've really got to think long and thinking long is just, you know, getting kids interested in these things. Um, and the younger, the better. So, um, congratulations on your new book, Nancy and Mark. Yeah, thanks, thanks guys, at mimianmoto.com. Speaking of responsible bikers, I've got some news. On October 13th, a trooper attempted to pull over Christopher Gaylor, 38, of Alexander, Arkansas, for having no visible license plate Uh, on his motorcycle. I saw that. A chase ensued, with speeds approaching 100 miles per hour, (laughs) until Mr. Gaylor jumped from his motorcycle in a residential area of North Little Rock, state police said. A second state trooper used a taser on Gaylor and a fire immediately erupted, engulfing Mr. Gaylor in a fireball. (laughs) State police said they later learned that Mr. Gaylor was carrying about one gallon of gasoline in his backpack. Mr. Gaylor was taken to the hospital and is expected to survive. Yeah, I saw that. That was pretty gnarly. But, you know, I was actually born in North North Little Rock, Pulaski County, and the dude was like carrying it in like a Pepsi bottle or something, <laughs> and he ran from the cops. So it's like, I mean, just yeah, why, and he was still uh, running from the cops when like, they tased. You know, it looked like the dude you know tased him right in the gas tank. Why, why <laughs> would his you backpack? Why would you carry the gas in your backpack? I don't understand. That. <laughs> well, the same reason you ran from the cops. It seemed like a good idea at the time. At the time. So, because it's like, oh, okay, oh, the gas station two miles down the road. Now I still got to carry this tank vi- on me. <laughs> the video is pretty pretty dramatic, though. Oh, it's a video. Oh yeah, um, and I, it, it looks like the taser hits him right in the backpack, full of gas. And then just <laughs> it just <laughs> Roman candle. Oh. I'm actually going to use this as a plug for a good product. One of the good products I actually got off of AliExpress, which are those little gas bottles. They have survived a lot. One of them is really quite dented up. But if he had had it in an aluminum gas bottle with a sealing lid, that wouldn't have happened. Surely you mean aluminum, darling. Yes. Thank you. Exactly. No, if he had that, he probably would have sold it for more meth. And then been back in the plastic <laughs> jug again. Or to make meth yeah, with that bottle. That's it. 
Yeah, but just hold on now. Oh. I have more news. Oh, you don't say. Here we go. So, the AMA announces the 2022 Hall of Fame inductees. This year, they include Speedway World Champion Greg Hancock, Supercross Champion James Stewart, AMA Superbike and World Superbike Champion Ben Spees, GNC Champion Kenny Coolbeth, and then Motorcycling Pioneer Effie Hotchkiss, and fabricator Sandy Cosman. The six inductees will be honoured during the 2022 AMA Hall of Fame induction on October 28th in Pickerington, Ohio. That was last night. That was last night. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, and nice. um, um, some of my Chickastaners were there. Oh, no kidding. Ooh. Well, Maggie was there. Oh, yeah. Okay. But she took Lily as her date, who's one of our chick standers who got to go. I tell you what. I'm and Aaron with, was there. I'm looking hmm. at a picture of James Stewart. He's a very handsome young man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a good looking guy. Charger. Um, apparently, there was a, uh, uh, in the social media, uh, Maggie was telling the story that Lily, who really didn't know who any of these people were, but just went to have fun, except for Aaron Sills. <clears throat> Um, wanted to get a picture with James Bubba Stewart and turned around and asked the man to take their picture, and it was Malcolm. Oh, how funny. <laughs> of all the people. I assume Malcolm Smith, yes. Yes. <laughs> Here, can you take this a picture of us, sir? I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> oh, my God. Because she had no idea who he was. But that's okay. Yeah. Um, before we, we have a guest coming in soon. I wanted to give another uh, update and another plug for the Rev Sisters Moto Film Festival, which is happening right now. <clears throat> the free preview weekend has just ended, but that's okay. For 10 bucks, you can get a ticket that's good for another two weeks. And we've got a lot of films. So there's one of the films I wanted to, <clears throat> to share that is actually quite fascinating and grueling. Uh, there's a film we have called 972 Breakdowns. It's a full like two hour film and it was about these five uh, German uh, artists decided that they wanted to travel from Germany to New York City and on Urals with sidecars. So they bought four sidecars and took off on this trek. And they went the long way. Yeah, they went the long way. They went across uh, Europe and then up into Russia and they went on the road of bones. If you're not familiar with that, that's. Real hardcore riding. And the idea was to go up across um, northeastern Russia and then over the, the, is it the Bering Strait that you can go into Alaska, down into Canada? That was their plan. Um, If you can tell by the title of the film, 972 Breakdowns, they had a lot of breakdowns on the road. Is that both mechanical and emotional? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but here's the thing, and this was quite interesting. And I and Emma, I'm wondering I'm wondering how if this applies to other bikes. The reason they chose the Ural is because there was everywhere on that route you could get parts for it. Hmm. It could well have been. And I'm wondering if 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 Ural is one of the bikes that you can get parts in the most places for well, isn't that, that crazy the, the design hasn't changed for what <clears throat> like 40 or 50 years now the design hasn't changed since stone age times there you go so like <laughs> stalin <laughs> they've been selling that same bike for the last 
70 years, like the parts were everywhere, I would imagine. Well, Dark, quit starting. Or, or they're all over the side of the, the road. Very, <laughs> at the very least, they're very easy to make a replacement part. Right. And I minimal, think, effort, minimal effort. Right. And I think that's that that's a big plus. I mean, you know, if you if you break a URL, the chances are, and I, I am pretty sure that in one of the handbooks, it said, if you can't find a part, visit your local blacksmith and he'll make you one. Hey, there you <laughs> go. Right? Say, well, and it, you just, if you can find a bad blacksmith shop, you're all, you'll be all set. And in fact, all the way across Russia, they would stop at like flea market type of outdoor markets and pick up pieces and parts to take with them. And they had quite yeah. a, a stash of parts, including like case engine cases and pistons <laughs> and everything. Wheels. They, they, were, they were carrying so much, but... Once they were getting up into the the rugged terrain of Road of Bones, um, Road of Bones is not a really a good road. In fact, it's <laughs> no. constantly reclaimed by nature. Rivers taking out bridges and sections of roads. And apparently the reasons called the Road of Bones, was it Stalin who built the Road of Bones? Yes. I think Stalin. We'll and they say every couple meters is another body underneath the road. Sounds about right for that. Yeah. <clears throat> and then they decided to take a shortcut. <laughs> through nature Jeez. and they had to basically build bridges over like i mean yeah it's crazy and one fascinating thing they did they were carrying so much gear with them they decided to build a trailer to carry even more gear and they built a trailer <laughs> that could also unfold and be a portable bridge <laughs> wow that's intense <laughs> right <laughs> So they needed that to get over these like just sections of missing road oh and stuff, <laughs> right? Wow. And so they, they'd have this little bridge, which is basically like a, it's just a ramp up and then back down the other side with a, you know, the axle in the middle. But sometimes for a deep section of a river or something, that's exactly what you needed to get over mm. that, right? Or mm. a mud pit or something. And so that was a solution. But then they found that, the bike didn't have enough power to go up hills with all the gear and the trailer <laughs> that weighed a lot ha- had to weigh enough to be able to support oh, a year all going over it. I mean, oh every solution created a new problem. Oh my yep. goodness. <laughs> well, so I was just reading about it a little bit. Um, as many as a million uh, political slaves and prisoners could have yeah. been killed during the construction Ooh. of it. Wow. Yeah. And because the ground was frozen, they just incorporated you into the roadway. Because yeah. it was too hard to dig a hole. Oof. Yeah, they buried you in the road. There's so yeah. figure a million people by how many miles? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty hardcore. And yeah. then at one point they had to travel down a river, so they ordered these uh, inflatable uh, raft pontoons that they tied to the bikes and welded up a propeller shaft attached to the drive shaft. <laughs> That's awesome. And wow. then. And then tethered them all together and made a giant raft and, and used the front wheel for steering with like a rudder that dropped down. <laughs> yeah, awesome. again, every every solution created a problem. Hmm. But um, it was, it's a fascinating, fascinating movie called 972 Breakdowns. Go to Rev Sisters, R-E-V, sisters.com. And for 10 bucks, you can register and see there's 21 movies. Um that you have another two weeks to watch. So go check that one out. Um, and then the the other one that I really, really love is um, Little Giant, the PW50 story. It's a guy who started riding on a PW50. Now he's grown up and he bought an old one and fixed it up for his little girl. 
and got her in writing, but kind of told the story of the impact. How many racers today started out on a PW50? I don't know, probably a lot. Yeah, a little 50cc Mm -hmm. mini dirt bike, and what an impact it has had on the motorcycle community. So that's just another great film. Um, so, uh, yeah, our guest should be coming in any second. Um, there is, uh, there's a controversy. How do you say it, Emma? Controversy? Controversy. Controversy? Yeah, yeah, uh, yes. That's controversy. Been, yeah, um, that's been coming up more and more that I wanted to bring up. And it's actually two different topics that we're going to be discussing. The first one is called right to repair. Are you guys familiar with this? Very much so, yeah. Yeah. Um, But the second one, I don't even know what what to call it, but it's uh, subscription upgrades. Is that what you call it? I don't know, like unlock, like unlock stuff. Yeah, like I was looking at- Paywall. There you go. Paywall is a subscription to to ownership, if you will. Yeah, so these are two different different (laughs) subjects, but Really, they're kind of the same because they're coming in from other industries, and 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 ch- and things are changing. Um, so I thought, you know what? Let's let's bring in somebody who really knows uh, uh, what's going on, and uh, brought in one of our old friends from the AMA. We got Mike Sarah here with us. You guys remember Mike was on when we were talking about New York City and oh uh, yeah, I'm- all the stuff going on with them, and mm-hmm. that was crazy. That was crazy. Um, but you know, uh, and here's the thing, here's a great thing. One of the reasons that we're all members of the AMA is, uh, you, you can call them up. Uh, Mike, I assume you can just call up an AMA rep and ask them questions about things anytime you want, right? Pretty much within business hours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I called up Mike because I know you brought this up last time you were on, uh, the right to repair. That is, uh, a, a, it's a big issue that's coming up. Now, this is existing in lots of different um, I- industries. Cell phones. I can't get a new battery for my cell phone, right? I can't get uh, – you can't do that anymore. Um, but even bigger, I think, uh, like John Deere tractors, mm-hmm. there are farmers who can't do uh, repairs to it without taking it to a certified dealer who don't always have access to a certified dealer, which makes it a bit of a conundrum. Mike, how did uh, AMA get brought into right to repair? What what brought it to your attention first? Um, probably before my time. Um, I started in 2016, and the the issues existed kind of well before then. Largely, I think where folks heard of it first and foremost is probably in the on the automotive um, industry, but. Um, We've been involved in consumer protection things, things like making sure lemon law stuff applies to motorcycling um, and those type of broad consumer based things. So this has been something as it's evolved and motorcycling has been impacted on it. We've um, been involved from the beginning. And I think 2012 was a particularly important year with the state of Massachusetts passing a law that did not include motorcycles, but included other road going motor vehicles under their version of right to repair that led to a national memorandum of understanding between the uh, uh, the automotive industry and kind of the automotive independent repair shop or similar thing industry of of how they'll apply the Massachusetts law to the country. Yeah. Um, and then different manufacturers do a better and worse job, um, as I understand it, on the automotive side, but largely they comply. And 
as vehicles, motorcycles included, get more complicated, you've got it becomes more of a software question and a lot more data is involved. And then we're having kind of the same debate these days of where exactly a line is drawn, um, in particular in the automotive side, whereas we're in the motorcycling side are, you know, way behind in terms of the yeah. consumer's right for independent repair shots, right to the information and parts required to make repairs. So an example would be, Jim, you have a brand new bike. A sick, I do, a yes. Jixer. I, I'm a Jixer bro. So if kinda. you wanted to, say, do some performance upgrades, change out the exhaust, flash the ECU, yeah. could you take it to Emma's shop? I want to make it more race ready. I want to I want to look cool yeah. and have like right. a cool exhaust and, the and flash the thing. And Can he bring it to your shop? He can. But there's a limited amount that I am able to do as a repair shop. And this is something new for Suzuki. And this came in this year. So there's, there's software on his bike that I need a Suzuki-specific software on my laptop to speak to his bike, to flash the ECU, to turn the service indicator light out. Up until this, Up until that point, Suzuki's largely had been self-diagnosing and um, self-regenerating when it came to the service indicator light. All that's gone away now. You need Suzuki-specific software. And what I want to say to Mike is we need to understand that right to repair goes a certain way. Now, I'm sure I can buy the software from Suzuki in order to service Jim's bike. That's what right to repair basically means. Whether it's worth my while doing it because it is so expensive, that's the question for a smaller independent shop. Now, Triumph's a great example. I do a lot of modern Triumphs through my shop. So to drop a couple of grand on Triumph software, it makes perfect sense for me. But as of right now... There's only a couple of Suzukis. In fact, Jim's is the only Suzuki I know that you need specific software. From this point, they're all going to be that way. But with a Suzuki dealer just down the road from me, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. So, you know, there's there's a cost factor as well. So, yeah. Absolutely. So what what is the AMA's official stance on this? Is this good? Is this bad? Is this just how things are going? I think first and foremost, it's, you know, you are a consumer, you own your product. And as part of that should come with the ability to choose an independent mm -hmm. repair shop that has, I guess, the the phrase used by the right repair advocates writ large over every industry from cell phones to tractors to motorcycles is the, you know, available for a fair and reasonable price. So, you know, like, like you said, $2,000 for something you may use often. It's not too unreasonable if you're a shop, maybe a little past a, um, an individual. But as long as for a consumer, that stuff is available, parts, information required to make the repair, service manual type things is available to you or your independent shop. You should have the full right and uh, ability to make use of that. Um, and then a second point there, I had my head, I've already already escaped. It's been a long day. Man. Sorry. <laughs> well, um, I, I can I can jump in. Um from the standpoint of the 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 the, the makers the, the the industry they're saying we can't have people who are not certified or not trained going into these systems that may disable safety features and 
also may alter the, 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 the running of the engine, how you say that, the efficiency of the engine and make it worse. So that thus voiding a warranty, like they can't, and in the case of John Deere, they're like safety features are really important. There are things to keep you from like falling out and running over yourself, you know, that they can't let somebody have full access and maybe disable features. So um, I kind of get that point, but also with somebody like zero, Emma, I mean, could you work on a zero? Oh gosh, no. Well, I mean, yes and no. Um, if a zero needs tires, if it needs brakes, yeah. if it needs suspension work, anything to do with a chassis, yes, of course I can do that. Anything to do with the uh, battery system, the controllers, yeah. absolutely not. Um, nor would I really, I mean... And that's what I wanted to get to. Nor would you really want to. Well, right? With zero as close as it is... Yeah, but to, to uh, you know, the mechanic in the middle of anywhere, Kansas right. or something, they don't have the uh, the ability. They don't have the train. They You really do need to have the training to work on something like a zero. Not just the training, but you need to have the the tools oh, to absolutely. access it. You you need a twenty five foot long fiberglass cane in case <laughs> yeah. you become electrocuted. Um, so should that not apply then for the high tech high tech uh, you know motorcycles? That I mean, is this protecting the consumers from somebody who's not authorized? I mean, Mike. I mean, are we are we trying to protect the consumers? Or are we trying to protect the maintenance industry? the small shops. It's, it's both really is. I'm certainly not a very competent mechanic and yeah. my options are relatively limited for what I can um, go and take my bike to. I, I had a, it was this issue came a little more personal for me when I had a check engine light on my bike, come on the last couple of minutes of a long trip home. And I don't have any way to check what that code is. If it's anything serious, the bikes behaving totally normally as far as I can tell. Yeah. But um, in order to just get that code checked to tell me what that code is and if it's serious and reset it, my local authorized dealer, it was more than a month to get in there to do, wow. you know, take the seat off, plug it in and read a code. What, what bike but are you I, riding, Mike? I have a Ducati Multistrada uh, V4. Yeah. Um, That's a perfect example. Ducati yeah. are absolutely model specific with their software. Yep. And it to buy into that software, mm-hmm. it you not only do you have to buy the software, but you pay a monthly subscription in order to keep it current. And so the dealership, when the dealership plugs your Multistrada in, and they say this is you know Joe Soap's dealership, they'll have to get Ducati will ask for a code. And the code is on, it's changed every month. And so they ask for a code and you have to put the code in, then they will un- unlock the information. It's completely out of reach of independence. So, but do you agree or disagree with that then? <sighs> yeah. Well, he's, see, the- let's talk about Triumph because, the, you know, these are my homeboys. So I get a modern Triumph come in. I take the seat off, and the Triumph connector is a standard OBD2. I plug in my OBD2 mm-hmm. reader, which you can get for $20 yeah. from um, 
AutoZone. Mine's a little more expensive than that, but nevertheless, it's an OB2D2 reader. You plug it in, it gives you the code. You have to do a little bit of thinking because all it, all it does is it gives you a code. It doesn't tell you what's wrong with the bike. It'll give you mm-hmm. a code and it'll say, you know, um, temperature sensor out of range. You think, okay, well, where's maybe the temperature sensor isn't out of range. Let's have a look and see what's happening. And, oh, yeah, look, the temperature sensor has, you know, a wire pushed against it, so it's a little closer to the engine than it should be, the ambient temperature sensor. So you move it away and the check engine light goes away. But you can do that. And, you know, I have software to turn off the service indicator light on Triumphs, and it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't massively expensive either. Ducati, BMW... BMW, you can buy the software, but it's all pirate stuff. And whenever whenever you plug a pirate program into a $30,000 bike and you're talking to an ECU with pirate software, it's scary. You know, for, from a dealer's perspective, for, I beg your pardon, from an independence pers- perspective, you know, you're plugging in something and you might do something bad to that ECU just with this knockoff software. You're relying incredibly heavily on the person who wrote that software. So I want yeah, to be able to service these bikes. And I want to be able to, if, as an independent, it's frustrating for me because I can do the mechanical work to an extremely high standard, as good as, or to a certain extent, better than the dealer. Because the way my shop runs, I'm not constricted by time. I'm not up against the clock. I don't have a foreman looking at his watch and saying, Emma, why haven't you finished that bike yet? I've got 10 more outside. It takes as long as it takes. And if I have to go back and do something a second time just to make sure it's right, I will. Which is why you won't pay less anywhere else. Right. But the stumbling block for me is always (laughs) software. I just saw that OBD2 reader at AutoZone, 38 bucks. There you go. And now you, now you can turn off check engine lights on Triumphs with that. So I want to get back to, um, Mike, with the AMA. This is kind of a thing that is hard to navigate because on the one hand, it seems like you do want to restrict who's getting access to these delicate things. But I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, is the AMA one of the things they're lobbying to do is to make it more affordable for these shops to get access to the software? Maybe theoretically the way, you know, because this hasn't really applied to motorcycling, you know, Mm -hmm. essentially you have to look at how the automotive world has worked for the last, you know, 10 years is probably closer to 2012 than today with the newer, more advanced cars. That's kind of the model where it's never going to be perfect. And kind of the things we've just been talking about, the, the things where, you know, you maybe don't want your average consumer um, or, you know, um, independent repair shop that doesn't have access to the right equipment. Just like um, Emma was saying with the, you know, non, non-approved BMW ECU devices, you know, if you had access to an approved one and knew it would work, you would have a lot less concern about what damage you may be doing to the motorcycle. Um, and that goes for you know, appropriate repair um, information as well. You know, if you can't get a service manual very easily or it's way out of your price range and you're relying on somebody on YouTube telling you how to do something, 
you may be all right. You may not. Not that the service manual is going to walk a absolute beginner through some complex things, but it should at least give them a clue of, okay, I'm out of my depth. Let me go ring up my local local dealer, local independent repair shop. Who should have this information? And even going back a little further to the zero, when it comes to the software and that stuff, it's not necessarily that it's 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 just a different skill set. Yeah. As far as you know, the programming and software level of a lithium ion battery and electric motor. It's not in here, you know, in theory, it should be relatively similar from one electric bike to another because it's you're doing the same thing just with some different somebody else's software controlling it. You're it's you move from more the mechanical skill set that we have in abundance in our independent repair shops to a software skill set that I imagine we're going to be growing pretty quickly as folks figure out their own third party non-approved ways to get into those bikes to make the changes right. they want to make them behave the way we want because that's what motorcyclists have always done with these i see independent shops for the electric bikes for the zeros for the energicas in 10 years time i don't see independent motorcycle shops i see independent electric propulsion shops so it's going to be the place where you take your prius or you take your tesla or you take your rivian pickup truck or you take your zero and it's, it would be far easier to train an electric propulsion specialist on how to fit motorcycle tires and how to work on motorcycle forks and brakes rather than teach a traditional motorcycle tech how an electric propulsion system works. So I, I, that's how I see electric propulsion with the independents going. You will have like a one-stop in, you know, electric propulsion shop, and that's where you're going to take anything with an electric motor. Well, and let's face it, um, and I think part of the reason we need to have somebody like the AMA is the industry, it's in their best interest to get people to go back to their dealers, right? And we've seen it happen in the auto industry. When they first started going to the high security keys, now you have to go to a dealer to get a $600 key made, right? Now, my company happens to own a knockoff security key uh they finally were able to crack the codes and you can go to an ace hardware and get it for half the price of the dealership that's how they priced it half because why is it six hundred dollars at a dealership and three hundred dollars or two hundred dollars at an ace hardware store what's what's the difference because they can charge you whatever they want they've got you captive they created uh an industry where you have to go back to them it's a monopoly and so do you be able to have a lobbyist like the AMA to go, hey, hold on, no, 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 no. There are some people who want to work on their own vehicles. We need to make that, right? you know, make it affordable and, 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 and capable. Otherwise, it is in the best interest of the industry to lock you out and only let their dealers work on everything. I mean, do you agree with that, Mike? Well, like, that's where people would go, companies would go if they could. I think it's, you know, in their best interest in the typical short-term view that a lot of industry has taken in not just motorcycling. Um, you know, if they feel they have a pretty captive audience, locking them into their their shops, their their mm-hmm. their methods, and, and that's it, it looks pretty good. But if I'm in a different part of the country where I'm looking at a bike where I only have a dealer that's maybe a hundred miles away, yeah. I might go, I, that might be reasonable for me to go out and buy a bike. But if I know I, I have to make that journey every time I'm going to get it serviced, 
that's going to change my mind. Um, the long-term health of motorcycling, the ability to for people to get their bike service where they want to get it serviced by people who have the parts and information to do it properly and for a reasonable price because they're, the dealers then have to compete is going to be better for motorcycling in the long term, even if it's frustrating for you know repair profits in the short term. Right. An ideal scenario, I mean, in this, this huge soap opera that's motorcycling, there is a place for the co-op garages like the Recycle Garage. There is a place for independents like me. There is a place for dealerships. But the glitch comes, as you found out, Mike, that I think we wouldn't necessarily be having this conversation if you'd have called up your dealership and they'd have said, you'd said, listen, I've got the check engine light on my V4 Multi. And they said, come on down, let's turn it out for you same day. You had to wait a month. And so I'm still waiting. And you're still <laughs> waiting. So, you know, we yep. need to release some of that backlog. Um, well, and we need to sort of ease it a little bit. And I'm not sure how that's going to pan out because everybody's short of staff. Everybody's short of staff. Yeah. You know, I went to go buy a pizza at Little Caesars today. Yes. Closed. No staff. There wow. was a sign on the door. Mm. So, Patrick, did you say you were having a similar issue with your KTM? I did, yeah. So I, I asked Emma about this, like, what, two months ago? So I, I had changed some things on my KTM. I had removed the emission stuff on it because I was like, <gasps> oh, my God. Oh, God forbid, right? Scofflaw. And especially in, <laughs> and especially in California. Like, Jesus, it's the end there. of the world. Yeah. And I was like, I just I don't want to deal with it. It's extra crap on the bike. It's hoses and everything everywhere. And I get... A engine warning light. Oh, you got busted all the time. All the Big time. Big brothers watching. I know, and I get this engine warning light, and it's like oh, I'm blinking it, and it was hard to find the blink codes for that bike. Mm. It took me a couple days of looking online and trying to find it, and they were like, "Well, we've got the we've got the blink codes for the 990 from like early 2000 and this and that and everything is like so it's like it seems like every model the blink codes start to change around but i finally found one that it okay yeah that makes sense it's the sas system the secondary air system on the ktm and that's exactly what i changed makes a lot of sense and i came to emma one day and i said hey what would it take to flash the ecu and emma you were like not gonna happen not on a ktm yep not gonna do it and i was like i kind of understand that and when i looked more into this they were like when it comes to ktms they're very reluctant even ktm specialists ktm technicians they're reluctant to flash the ecu because you've done something that's no longer standard on the bike a couple weeks later i went to a dealership i had some tires done on it and i said hey by the way i've got this engine light can you guys flash it and they said no <laughs> we, will, we will not flash it because this is outside of the standard it no longer meets emission standards and so now I just have to live with the fact that my little engine light is just going to flash on me that's all what, the time. That's what tape's for. Little yeah, piece of no, tape. And it's like, I was like, as, and, but that's the thing. I started off well, and I'm like, okay, it's the same blink pattern so as last time. We're good to go. But it's it, nothing new. Is but, that right to repair? But I think it should is fall that, under Mike, that. Is that, I think, yeah. is that right I to repair? It, I think it should fall under that. And I was like, I've modified my bike. Or is this an example of why we shouldn't have the right to repair? Because as I said, that people are going to disable safety features. Right, or, but the, the problem is with this is like, okay, yeah, that little light is flashing. Well, what in this happens, case, it's a requirement by the state of California what, that you're disabling. That, what 
But what happens? What happens if another engine light starts flashing and I don't pay attention to it because I'm just like I think think he's just given the argument of why why we shouldn't have the right to repair. He's the no, but like I think I think the argument is is like okay if you're if you're a halfway competent person I know exactly what I did to this bike. No, can I can I eliminate that problem so I can. Pay attention to something hold else on, that hold might on. be Let, more critical. I want Mike to answer this. Mike, can you answer it for him? Well, I think the fact that you were able to find the code to know the light was from the change you made and not something else, that's the right to repair issue for it. To an extent, the yes. dealer's decision to not, you know, they can refuse to service it to a, a degree. Say, Let's say if you had what Harley just got in trouble for with the FTC, if you had maybe done something different and put on an aftermarket pipe, and then tr- had some warranty work they needed to get done and got denied because of an aftermarket pipe. According to the FTC, Harley doesn't get to deny you that work. So, but the the next this question is I have, this is not that you the, you made a modification. You know why that light is on, um, and their decision to not do it, like Liza was saying, whether it's between the emissions rules for it um, and whatever other changes. You know, I, I, I'm not 100 percent sure. Most states have motorcycles under their lemon law, but if um, that's another thing, whereas if you, the more modifications you make, and if them flashing your bike takes, creates some but, catastrophic oh, error, but they the, may eventually have to be buying that bike back from you because you made a change they're unaware of. So I, I understand that their their perspective perfectly. It's right. you having the information to make that change in the first place. That's the right to repair Right, but the, the other side of this equation is like, okay, so I made this change. Like, why can I not buy the computer from KTM, the factory, to to well, say flash the ECU on my own, knowing full well the risk I'm doing in that, you know, yeah, most most people can't sense. do that, right? But like, right, I can't as a just a general consumer, I can't just buy that that the KTM diagnostic computer, like that has to be a KTM certified technician, right? Well, I, right, and and KTM's already got legalese that tells you that your warranty is going to be voided if you do this, so you're right. doing this with a full knowledge that you are right. not. Going to avail yourself no, and, of that warranty if you if you mess the bike. I up. know my warranty. So, my warranty is right. gone. So but, so why can't they let you do that? Right. And the the crazy part about the KTM, it took me like three years, three or four years of looking around online. Where do I find the service manual for this bike? This is a twenty fifth, yeah. twenty seventeen motorcycle. And Haynes, that's part Haynes of or whatever just released the service manual on this bike, and I finally. Shortly after Haynes released that manual, I found the factory service manual for the bike. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it should not have taken this many years to find this. So I, I'm going to yeah. ask the question, Emma, I want to ask you, because it sounds like this, I'm going to say this is equivalent to, Emma, have you seen where people will, let's see, pull the uh, the the baffles out of their exhaust and put some eBay pod filters on and make it call it a cafe racer, make it run like shit, but it sounds really cool. and looks really cool. Yes. So that's not right to repair. Is it? That's right to mess it up. So what would happen on something that has a code? It's like, Oh no, no, you messed it up. You can't do that. Should you have the right to change, which is different from repair? I well, you see the, the trouble is it's a broad umbrella. If you're getting a check engine light, or an MIL light, which is the same and that, thing. And that's what drove me nuts because I was like, okay, I've got a check engine light. Right. So How do I diagnose this if I can't find 
well, the it's, list of what yeah. these light codes are. And they well, say, well, it's, it's you, published. You found it eventually, good. yes. But you, but it, you but found it. But it they make it as difficult as possible to find that information. That's and the it, thing. And it wasn't actually for the bike that I own. It was for a different generation. And I'm like, it just so happened to line up. And it's like, you right. can't find, if I went up and looked at 2015 KTM Super Duke 1290R, you could Google that thing for months and you will never find the list of codes for that bike. You know, which is infuriating to me. It is. Yeah. There is a, a blank area, particularly with KTM's. Um, but ultimately, it was self-diagnosing. And I'll tell you the dodge that a lot of people do, and I'll say the same to you. If you change the exhaust, say, on a Jixa or an R1 or a couple of years of R6, you'll get an engine light on. Because the exhaust valve, it's got a, a, a motorized exhaust valve. And the dodge is you leave the motor on. You but, don't, but you, it's not connected to anything. And that puts the light out. So if we extrapolate that further, you, you've, you need to put your air injection system back on just to have it disconnected. The, the thing is, is like it's changed now with the new standards. So, like, my bike it is one of those generations where, like, Theoretically, they're like if you, they they sell you the dongle, right? It's just it's a plug that goes into the right. what it used to be. Then, like if you plug this in, but like I bought the dongle from KTM itself. Yes, didn't do the job. Right. So they're like the new bikes with the new European emission standards. Right. They're like doesn't matter how many dongles you put on it, it'll never reset itself ever. Right. And that's just the way things are going. And that's yeah. just the that's the emission standards, and they can't get around this crap somehow. Well, that's Euro four emission standards, yeah. and I mean that's it's just getting harder and harder for motorcycles and cars with internal combustion yeah. engines. The industry is gearing up to go electric. So, yeah. I mean, this is a good question, Mike, and I'd like to understand more. So, for the AMA, again, you either have the industry. You have the consumer or you have the middleman, the, the small shop. Who really are you protecting and looking out for? Well, first and foremost, we are, our members are consumers, first and okay. foremost. Um, you know, that, that is the end of the day, but we don't really have a choice if we're going to be legitimately be the consumer organization for motorcycling. We're, we'd like to think we're a lot more than that, but that is a key function that we serve because there is an industry association. There is a, an association of independent repair shops that maybe not specific to motorcycling, but that exists at least in the automotive world. Um, so we have to be there for the the consumers. Okay, so you're looking out for the consumer. I'm I'm curious since you guys have been following this, are you seeing any trends or have you seen any attempts that AMA had to step in and go like, whoa, whoa, whoa? Uh, we see where this is going. Let's we need to have a talk. Yeah, there's been as more and more products you own um i think phones are kind of a, a very easy touch item for everybody because not everybody everyone not everyone has a john deere <laughs> yeah yeah you know maybe you may not have a hundred thousand dollars or something like that that requires a technician to come out and change yeah. an air filter that you've been doing for the past 40 years right but everybody's got a phone and even if i'm certainly not capable of replacing a screen on it or something like that the you know local electronics repair shop is and so Kind of through that frustration where folks have been with, you know, and it's everything from, you know, maybe your your microwave, your toaster or whatever you've spent or your TV, mm -hmm. other expensive consumer electronic products 
have gone in this direction of being harder and harder to repair if repairable at all and if that information is available. So we've seen kind of in response to that, taking the right to repair that applied to the automotive world and trying to apply it to other products. Um, and because that, you know, it, it came out of this Massachusetts law that was only for on-road vehicles, not including motorcycling. Um, then the memorandum of understanding that applied kind of nationally. So you have the state law that kind of birthed a national status quo in, autom- in the automotive world. Um, when states try and tackle it, they go, okay, well, motor vehicles are covered under this thing. So we don't need to legislate about that because that's technically taken care of. We don't need to open that can of worms. And what we've seen is, so you see a state law that will be the basically mandate this information is made available for the public to repair these things, except motor vehicles, because motor vehicles are already covered. And what we have seen is the industry will come in and say, hey, well, you meant you get rid of all motor vehicles, but in your state, the definition of motor vehicle does not include motorcycles. And clearly, you don't want to include us in that. Um, so you should amend it to get rid of on-road motorcycling. And by the way, off-road motorcycling, four-by-fours, side-by-sides, um, um, ATVs, that shouldn't really be under this either because that's its own weird can of worms. And you don't mean to you don't you don't mean to cover things with motors um, like this. You're just looking at electronics. Where in reality. The bill's written that way because if they say all consumer products except motor vehicles, that's everything else. Because motor vehicles are the one thing covered. That's the one part of the puzzle that they have in place. And by excluding them, they're covering everyone else. Um, and then every little industry, motorcycling included, goes in there and goes, well, you don't mean us. You, you, you want us out of there. You don't want us to be part of that. And that's where we, t- we need to step in and go, no, no, no. We're just like motor vehicles. We have the same problems, the same issues. If anything, you know, as complicated as motorcycling can be, the most advanced motorcycle may be not as complicated as the most advanced car, certainly. I think the consequences of errors in certain safety components are far greater for us. But I think that's no, that's most apparent to the folks on the motorcycle. Yeah, that that is a good point. And thank you for your service. (laughs) Because, yeah, you are, the AMA is looking out for stuff like this. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about that I know, uh, Mike, that the AMA doesn't have an official stance on yet, and you're welcome to weigh in if you want. Um, And I'm not sure what we're calling it. Um, Subscription upgrades is what I'm calling it. Are you familiar with this? KTM just announced it, and this is something that Zero's been doing already. Paywall for features. Yeah, so, you know, I was talking uh, about the... uh, KTM 890 Adventure. Now, I'm not looking to get a brand new bike, but interestingly enough, the new 2023 KTM bike, they're offering um, an interesting feature. So when you first get the bike, it's going to be in demo mode. It's going to have all these features, right? That then will get locked down, and then you can pay to unlock them. It's the, it's the sales pitch for the first, what, month or so you own it? Well, um, some people are but, saying that for just they'll just do demo rides out of the shop and then yeah. lock it up and you can pay. Some, some people, might so, call that a bait and switch. Yeah, some are saying bit, that for the first, bit, like, yeah. 900 
miles right. that you can try it out and then it locks locks down. I mean, I'm going to play devil's advocate and, on. Well, okay. Let so, me let me say what like yes. for the KTM what these features are. Okay. Yep. So um, we're talking um, uh, an optional rally mode. Um, which is going to be all sorts of performance enhancements uh, for, for um, um, suspension and everything. There's traction control and slide control, a quick shifter for both up and down shifts. So this is something that gets unlocked. Cruise control. You pay extra to unlock the cruise control. Um, so these are things that the bike is capable of doing that will be locked down unless you want to pay. They haven't yet announced prices. So right. it, it it just dawned on me in the last couple of seconds, like how many of those modes are you really going to get into when you're in that break-in period too? So like you're well, you've it got depends a brand- if you're a hardcore adventure rider, right? You right. may want that but rally you, mode. No, I'm just saying you've got a brand new bike and like oh, I've got my demo, I've got my demo mode for the first month, maybe thousand miles or whatever. Are you really going to get into some of those modes when the engine is still brand new and you're trying not to push it too hard? Well, and here's the thing. They haven't yet announced if it's going to be a monthly subscription oh. or a yearly subscription or a one-time fee. I haven't found the answer to that yet. Well, you know, like with my like I don't know how like it just kind of feels like not good, like I don't like it, but with my my bike, the Suzuki, for example, mm-hmm. it came with a lot of like bells and whistles, I'll call it, that I wasn't looking for. But once you kind of got to experience it, you're like, "Oh, that's actually kind of cool." So, I don't know how it plays in the conversation, but Quick shifter, for example. I wasn't looking for a bike with a quick shifter, but man, it's pretty That's cool. great. Once you get used to them. Yeah, and I think what's more interesting in this aspect would be things for touring, like uh, cruise control. I don't use it much daily. There's one little mm-hmm. spot I do just to kind of use it. But um, but if I were going to AMA Vintage Days, for example, I would be using that thing all the time. So I could see, it's almost like my Garmin, you know, my Garmin InReach Mini. I can upgrade right. my SOS service based on what I'm up to. Or not. So in some ways, well, and that's that's it's compelling. That's, so like, so like my phone is a good example. When I travel internationally, just when I'm overseas, my phone automatically just adds them to my charges. So like, heated grips is a good example. If let's say heated grips were on a subscription service, Ooh, okay, it automatically hit it at it, forty-five degrees. But it's like if I'm if I'm using my heated grips, say one or two months out of the year, paying two or three bucks a month, no big deal. Because the other, what, 10 months out of the year, I'm never going to use them, right? All right. So you said heated grips. So Zero, I think Zero, Mike, do you know, is Zero the first uh, company to introduce unlocking features that the bike is capable of doing? Are you guys tracking this at all? Um, We, you know, taking my AMA hat off. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, as far as I know, I believe Zero is... is one of the first, I believe they're probably the first to do where you're doing it in the app, in the Zero app right. um, yourself. Whereas I believe dealers, for in KTM's case, are the ones do making these, you know, right. keeping whatever features you want after the demo. And, and while you're looking that up, Liza, I'm yeah. going to play devil's advocate with this. Um, I see it as just, it's another way of buying accessories for your bike. It is no different than going down the dealership and buying heated grips, but I, and paying I, them to put out, put I think it on. It, I think it depends. Is like if if it's a one time fee. Well, the the zero is yes. a one time so fee. Here, then yes, the, if it's a one time, then okay, yeah, it's I'm, so, I'm adding an accessory. But if I'm gonna pay twenty thousand bucks for a bike, 
Well, so is this something that should have come with the bike at this point? Right. <laughs> Especially if it's already equipped with it, why do you have to pay extra for it? Well, so in the case of Zero, so here's some of the enhancements that they have. Um, so if you want heated grips, I believe it's $195. Right. Which, so is, unlike a, which, grips. which is about the same what you would pay aftermarket mm-hmm. for a set of heated grips. No, for, you pay a lot well, less than that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. my, my, no, my KTM, you had to buy a KTM specific power part. It was like $150 just for the grips alone. No, and I then pay a dealer myself. to put it in. But if That's you, KTM. If, if you paid for a dealer, you'd be like $150 for the grips plus in the Bay Area, another $160 an hour for install, well, which all the install is is like pull off the old ones, plug in the new ones, and off you go. So right. let me tell or, you. Let me tell you what features they have. For I'm looking at the 2023 Zero SR. If you want a 10 percent faster charge, 195 dollars to unlock that. So it's a one time payment of 190. One yeah, 195. Okay. If you want a 10 percent extended range on your battery. $1,300. Well, it's, it's just options. That's all $1,300. upgrades. Um, parking mode. And this is interesting. Parking mode. They realized, and, and we know this because Terry hacked his Zero, that you can hack it to go in reverse, right? Hmm. If you turn the throttle the other way, it'll go in reverse. <laughs> now, the thing, you, you can go in reverse really at 70 miles an hour, which is crazy. So what they did is they created a thing called parking mode that puts it into a creep mode forward and reverse and this is just to help people assist them in a parking lot so you don't have to get off your bike and like pull it back into a space but in a parking mode 195 dollars to unlock a feature that the bike had the capability to do it's just software and here's the other one um this is called performance boost basically they're going to let you turn it up and take the limiter off and go faster than what it's limited to that's 1800 dollars. so a lot of people at zero got pretty mad because these mm-hmm. were things that the bike was capable of doing. And they that just they artificially out. limited intentionally in order to sell the access to those features. Which which okay, so like we, we talked about this earlier, like when an internal combustion bike, they artificially limit the engine. Like the engineer goes out and designs this amazing engine, they artificially limit it for emissions. I kind of understand that a little more with electric. You don't need that. So why not? It's not a legal requirement. Yeah. Why not just open the thing up and sell it to people? Like, look, okay. Because it's about making money, son. I know know it is about money. Because it's like, why not just sell it? Because it's like, okay, we can sell the performance to you. We can sell sell the power, everything, and none of the emissions crap you have to deal with. And you can feel good in your heart about having a bike that does all these things better than any internal combustion engine bike can and none of the environmental okay, downsides. But, but let's let's talk about money for a minute though. Now I have no idea how what percentage of owners are actually unlocking these features. But say for example, you know, some of these are, are pretty expensive, like the the uh the the no uh no limiter yeah, that was eighteen hundred bucks, 19, I think. Yeah. Bucks. A lot of money. That's a that's a chunk of change. And that's literally just a software switch that you know that there is yeah so, no i mean yeah they just like okay oh, in, right in some so, cases like oh online we just like switch it so you you go to bed one night and the next morning right. you wake up and your bike's a totally different machine right so so out of how many users are going to pay the money eighteen hundred dollars to unlock that is it going to be ten percent 
And if it's 10%, then then why don't they just increase the 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 price of the bike by $180? I bet because and let pe- everybody have that. I bet because those people finance those little additions. Mm-hmm. So you're like, I'll do that eighteen hundred bucks and that six hundred. Oh, by the way, I'm gonna finance it instead of seventy nine bucks a month. Can I pay eighty four bucks a month? I don't right, know. It just seems still, like a marketing ploy right, to try to only, make more dough. No, right. It, but I'm saying if there's only 10% of users who are actually unlocking that, then it's not going to be the gangbuster cash windfall that the manufacturer thinks it is. And they'd probably be, be, be better off just you know increasing the price of the bike a little bit so that everybody can enjoy that and just leave it unlocked for everyone. Well, I think, and, the, and it's going to make it a better. It's going to be a better draw too because then you don't have to pay these extra fees to get the fun parts. You get everything right off the bat, you know, for an extra 200 bucks, 250 bucks. I, I agree. That's with not what, a bad deal. I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think ultimately the market will decide, right? I know personally, no one likes paying extra for stuff. You want to pay right. for it once and get what you want. But, it, so, I, I think but the a, market will see if this is a good idea or not. I think it's a, it's a psychological thing because like with electric... Oh, it's totally psychological. No, it's with yeah. electric. It's not like oh, you're going to the dealership and getting a performance part. It's like no, we're just we're just flipping. like Emma's we're Harley. Flipping, we're flipping a switch over line. So like a good example of this is like when you see all those like storms and stuff. Tesla's a great example of this. Yeah. Here's here's the here's the electric. Here's no here's the hurricane. Oh, Tesla's decided that they're gonna just for everybody in the hurricane zone. We're just gonna bump your range up to like. Instead of 150 miles, just 250 miles, just automatically like that. And it's a great PR stunt. But it's like, dude, the car had that capability from the get-go, but nobody nobody had paid for it, so nobody had it. But now, all of a sudden, for this two-week window, now that you're in a hurricane zone, we're just going to give it to you. And it's a great, well, it's a great PR stunt. Sure, but in in that case, you you are actually sacrificing the battery health, you know, no. longevity for that because you're you're using the the buffer uh, buffer but, zones. But in the that thing battery. is, is like you have to understand that like the battery, it that's not a buffer zone of the battery. They were selling cars that had that capability all no, the time. No, but that's what I'm, no, that's the, what I'm saying all the time. That, and so like, right. they just they governed, if you will, their battery capability down lower. Right, and all electric vehicles do that out of out of safety and and right. because if you if you're maxing out the battery capacity, you know from from full to empty every time, but, that battery's not going to last more than a year or two. But the thing is, but is they're, you, no, they're selling they're selling vehicles that have that maximum battery capacity. You're paying for it, but like for the most people, well, we can sell it to you cheaper, and then oh, when the emergency comes along, we can open it up for you for this couple weeks time. Right. Well, so it depends on how, how much of us how much of a false ceiling and false floor are talking about too. So I have so. so I have a question, and again, Mike, I know AMA isn't on this yet, but I'm going to bring up some questions that I think you know should be should be on the AMA's radar. Here's one question: Do these unlocked enhancements travel to the next uh, owner of the vehicle? Or do they have to repurchase them again? Again, yeah. right? Um, and again, is this something that is uh, somebody brought up? So, if you're financing a bike, you're financing a fully loaded bike. Do you have to refinance when you unlock more things? <laughs> like, does that because does that raise the value of it for unlocking these? things i mean technology could even improve and if you had electric bike for two years and after 18 months they came out with a new flux capacitor and you could plug it in for x amount of dollars or maybe you would have to rent it for 30 dollars a month so so that is my question mike because i again 
AMA doesn't have an official stance yet, but I'm just asking, is this on your radar? Is this something that the AMA is monitoring? Because I think more than right to repair, I think that this really does affect the consumer. Yeah, no, this is definitely something I've been paying attention to. Yeah. I remember reading, I've, you know, I've, part of my job is keeping up on the motorcycle industry and reading about it. And if I would, were to hazard a guess, if we um, took any sort of official stance, it would probably be limited to as long as the consumer knows exactly what's mm-hmm. happening here, that if this is a one-time thing, it will transfer when I sell, that the, all these questions we're asking have answers. And you know that going into it, right? that as an, as an organization, we probably don't care beyond that. How the industry t- adapts, if, if every feature becomes a, a subscription, is a good question. One thing for me personally, taking the AMA hat off again, is everything we've been talking about just now. The, the main question I have is, how is this changing the MSRP? How much is this changing my the cost to me yeah. if I if I decide I'm one of those people who I want one of the 10 features and that's all I want. I don't want to pay for the other nine this might be great for me rather than, you know, it's like, I, it's, you know, who's ever seen a truly base model BMW motorcycle. Out and and we had discussed there, there might be somebody out there who wants one thing, but they've got to buy four things to get it. Um, so this might be good for them. The frustration I think that I, that I feel for this is, especially when it's a bunch of hardware in the case of the KTM, all that hardware is there. KTM is paid for it. Yeah. And whether or not I'm paying to unlock it, my bike might be, you know, a 10% cheaper um, because I pay paying to unlock it, but I'm still paying maybe two, 3% more because those, those parts had to be built, had to be installed in the first place. So I may be saving some money, but I'm not saving as much if those physical parts weren't there in the first place. And when it comes to the software end of things where it is just a switch, the cost to them was designing the software and that, that, that costs is months and, you know, maybe some updates. It's not, not a physical unit cost every single model sold. And that I find perhaps a lot more frustrating as a consumer um, because it is truly artificial where, it, and, you know, it, but if it does bring them the unit price down, if zero has decided, okay, if we bring the price down this way, we're going to bring more people in um, and sell more of the bikes, but we don't necessarily yep. know. We don't know what adjustments have been made on the consumer end. We are not I- doing the, I that, think the that. advantage for zero is if you're sending exactly the same product down the production line, it is cheaper to do. Um, one of the great loves of my life, Mike, as well as motorcycles, uh, are Jaguar cars. And people don't realize it, it, this is a great analogy. Back home in England, right up until the 90s now they've kind of moved away a little bit from it now but you could buy a jaguar with manual transmission rubber floor mats and wind up windows a very very basic Mm -hmm. car and you got that glorious engine and all that style but it was a very basic car and then they gave you the accessory book which looked like a dictionary it was that thick and said, you know, you can spec it out however you want, but if you just want the engine and transmission, you know, and just the performance, you can buy the basic car. And that's what the most police did. They bought these very basic cars. For America, they were very, very smart. They said, we're not going to do any accessories for America. We are going to put 
every accessory available on our Jags as one model. So every car had cruise control, every car had a moonroof, every car had power windows, every car had climate control, every car had every single option imaginable. It was basically one model. You just pick the color. And it was a brilliant marketing technique because ultimately the cost of the cars went down because they were only sending one model down the production line mm-hmm. that had everything on it. And so I see the theory behind it in terms of bikes. So it made it more cost effective. It made it a lot more cost effective because you're not running three or four production lines with high spec, low spec. It is one line. Everything's specced out. And then it's, I see it as just another way of buying accessories. It's a different way. Well, and it's it's not necessarily it's not like there's four different production lines. The way the way they do it, at least on the car side, is like they'll they'll send a car down the line and it's got a spec on it. It's got a sheet that goes with it and they put all that spec. The next car comes down with different spec. So the people building this, they have to oh my god, I got this part and that part and this part right. and this it's missing. It's well, missing match. And, and so things like, get it's, messed up. It's and it's very wrong, easy yeah. to yeah, just right. every car coming out, it's all the same spec, the same parts, everything's standard. Yeah. It's cheaper to manufacture that way because every part's the same. Yeah, right. it's just it's it's so, more economical. Exactly. So pass that economic value on to the customer, and well, I let think they say the they're doing that, have, on, right? But but don't but don't charge extra but for un, these features. Un, just let everybody have all the features. Unfortunately, what's going to happen is like, okay, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna send, and I would love to see this. We're like, okay, you you went out and bought a bike, and you decided I don't want all these features, so we're gonna sell it to you for much a much lower price. Then so like 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 let's take for comparison today a modern Euro spec bike you're looking at twenty twenty five k. Okay, we're gonna sell this bike to you now with a lot less features, less, no ABS, all this stuff, and you're gonna get it for say twenty two k. Great, I can afford that, but three years down the line, I want ABS. Okay, we can turn that on for you, and so by the time you turn all those things back on, you're back to that that primo price. Maybe that makes sense. Because like today, I can't afford a twenty five, twenty seven thousand dollar motorcycle. But over the next couple of years, I can start to afford those features. Great. What I'm unfortunately going to predict is that the manufacturer will decide we're going to still sell this bike for twenty seven thousand dollars because we know someone's going to pay for it, and they're down the road they're going to pay for all those accessories anyway. So we're just we're going to increase our profit margins. That's yep. the unfortunate we've part seen, that I see what's going to happen. We've seen a this in the U.S. this already in the form of uh, a California model and a forty-nine state model. Yeah, right. Yeah, that doesn't exist anymore because it's easier and cheaper to make build right. to one standard. Just, just make yeah. one standard vehicle, well, and it's just it's cheaper for them to do it. But they're, they're trying to make their profit margins go. So, like yeah. the consumer loses at the end of the day because, like, hey, if we can sell a bike. For a higher profit margin, why wouldn't we do that? That's really what it's going to come down to. So, and the, I think the questions of fairness and frustration on the consumer's part, knowing I have physical things or it's capable of doing things that I can't do, because we don't know any of these numbers behind it. We know the cost we have to pay. We don't know if we're saving money. If we're at, at the end mm-hmm. of the day, we're paying more money. Yeah. We can make a lot of assumptions, but we really don't know. Um, we can only compare to the previous model year and right. and hope that's a fair favorable comparison. And even then, we don't necessarily cost. Maybe they were losing money on the, the previous model year, or they're making a ton of money and now they're not. There's 
these backend numbers we really just don't have access. I just I just I don't see it happening that like hey like in a in a 2022 model we're going to sell for say $20,000. Well, in 2023 we're going to come at it with you know, you can buy it with less features. I don't think that price is going to drop drastically. I think it's going to be the same price. So here's here's the thing I found fascinating. When Zero announced this, and it, here's something that's interesting. This goes back to the 2020 models, the Cypher system. You can go back to a 2020 and unlock features on it that you haven't had. Yeah. Um, and then when KTM announced this, there's a lot of negative responses. All right. Here's what I, I think is happening. First of all, um, we're not trusting the manufacturers that this is a better deal for us, right? We think yep. it's just an, an advantage to them. So, um, Jim, how many versions of the Africa Twin are sold? And we're not talking colors. How many versions of the Africa Twin are I think available? Well, back to like the 18, 20 models, I'd say four. Yeah, I know four. Yeah. yeah. So there's four. You have the standard and the standard DCT, mm-hmm. and then you have the Adventure Sport and the Adventure Sport DCT. Yeah, because every time I pull out the book, I got to figure out which one I got. Yeah, right? <laughs> so how would you feel if they just had the same motor on all of... You've got the standard, I got the DCT. Mm-hmm. That DCT is like almost like this little box that's installed on the motor, right? What if your bike came with that, had the DCT components, but it also it had manual clutch because you didn't pay to unlock it. But if you wanted to pay, it's about $1,000 more, I think, for the DCT feature. If you wanted to pay $1,000, you can go and they will unlock your DCT on your bike. Would you feel like, well, wait a minute, I already own it. It's on the bike. That's kind of shifty. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of this and, gets back to the psychology of it. To- and you're being forced to carry around all that extra weight that you're not even able to use. Well, yeah, well, I get back to the psychology of it. You know, it's like, um, you know, you're going to look at it every day and be like, I don't even use that. And it's this thing sticking out. It'll just be irritating. Um, like having to pay extra for things. I like a lot of it is just it's a psychology of thinking, I don't know, you're, you're paying extra, you're being taken advantage of. So, um, yeah, but, I mean, that's what. But since when they offer separate models, you're like, oh, I can either get it with or without. Right, but when and they, and if and they gave them all with, but you, then you had to unlock well, it. Now I'll, you feel like, I'll wait you, a minute, I'll give you a basic. That's more of a mechanical thing. It's like, yeah, like right. we're changing, we're changing the transmission. That's a totally they're, different world versus software. It's like, like software is, it's a little different. Like, yeah, we're just we're we're opening up something that was already there to begin with. Wait, but that's the key. It's software. Yeah, and once you're in the realm of IT, we pay for a lot of things that aren't tangible you know right um you you can netflix netflix exists mm-hmm. netflix is there but you have to pay to but, be part well, you know, of this it, reminds me of it i don't play video games but i know kids and stuff too i wonder yeah. how many adults will like drop 25 bucks or 100 bucks on a video game to get a different color you right know, thing for their or GTA. You, you car were or using whatever, this, right? you were using Amazon Prime as an example. I'm an Amazon member, but I'm not an Amazon Prime member, what? and it what? exists. Every time I born. buy something on you. Amazon, Amazon Prime's right there, but I don't want to kick down the extra subscription to get Amazon Prime. But it exists; it's right there, and I don't get frustrated about it. I'm not going to kick down for that. I don't need it tomorrow. Um, and so it is with bikes. I think ultimately it may be a good deal for the consumer. And it's not that the manufacturers are necessarily trying to rip us off. The market will decide. So the market 
will decide what is a motorcycle, whether it's got electric propulsion or gasoline propulsion, capable of riding across the country with a high-quality spec, with heated grips and ABS, and, and what's it worth? And then the market of its comparables, I, I that's what will determine the original price. And the key to the market is competition. So, right, exactly. Right, so zero, you know, what kind of competition exists there? But I think if you have a healthy market with competition, I think the consumer d- typically does okay. But using that with the heated grips as an example... As far as I'm concerned, if Zero want $93 to unlock their heated grips, or was it 193 I think it was $195. That's a bargain. Because no, if you not. buy... <laughs> wait a minute, no, Bagel. No, if you buy a bucks. bike without heated grips, and you buy genuine heated grips, and then have to have them installed at the dealer, it's going to cost you a lot more than $193. Okay, bucks. But, 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 but Emma, you're buying a bike that has heated grips. You're buying a bike that has heated grips with the switch turned off, and you're paying somebody $193 but to, it's pay, software. to turn the it's switch a, on. It's a different way it doesn't of matter. buying it. It doesn't it matter. Does. If you have a physical switch, if you have a physical switch that has a, a, a physical padlock on your handlebars that you can't get off, that you have to go to the dealer and pay them $193 to take that padlock back padlock off so you can it's turn exactly that switch on. Exactly the same That's as bullshit. paying it's exactly That's the bullshit. same as paying your dealer no, the same amount to I, have heated grips I, put no, on. No, because because your bike's not already equipped with the heated grips. Because the heated grips are the expense. And when you have a bike that already has them installed, that expense has already been paid. And to, to put that behind a firewall I think is 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 anti-consumer. It is uh, it's it, it's it, unfortunate. Unfortunately, I hate I hate to burst the bubble here. Like we all think this is new. This is not is it, new. Like I work in industrial. Right? Oh, my bubbles burst. No, we, no, no. So Ooh, check uh, this out. What's like, that mess? Bubbles. No, there's, there's, there's a piece of machinery. No, there's a piece of machinery I've worked around where like there's a feature on a piece of machinery that like it's just it's considered standard in modern machinery. When this piece of equipment was bought, it had an option. Do you want this option or not? If you want this option, it's another $11,000. They decided not to have it. it. All it is, all it literally is, is a guy comes out and he just switches a little bit in yeah. the software. It isn't, it's not yeah. a physical switch. It's just that's a bit in the software. BS. And well, that's, that's for 11000 But they were doing this back in the early it's, 90s. Right. It's, it's all, it doesn't, always it doesn't, been around. Right. It's, it's always been, been around for a long time. It's becoming more prevalent now. I know, but it's, it's always been around. And unfortunately... Companies have gotten wise to this, and it's like, well, shit, they're going to buy it anyway. Right. Like, companies why don't we just charge them for because, it? Right, companies have gotten and wise to this because consumers have not. And well, but the thing is, there's no way, there's no way to change it, unfortunately. And so, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not an sure advocate for it, but and yet here we are. So you, it's you, up to the companies you, to change that because because they, they need the, pressure from the, the consumers. The companies won't change it because they're like, we don't care. They're going to pay for it one way or the other. Like. It's and now we're gonna make our Liza, money. Liza, like, do you need the talking stick? Go for, no, no, go for it. I'm sorry. So I, I was gonna say, you said this has been around and it has. We were out in for, the garage yeah. talking about this, and Michael yes. was mentioning he was helping somebody work on their truck or van. Yes, that didn't have the air conditioning option. Right, yeah. and he's like, "Hey, you know that your your truck actually has a compressor and oh, all the, everything oh. in it. They just didn't put the switch on the dash because nice. they didn't order." 
but the the truck yeah. came with it all in because there. Because it's cheaper. But if you ask for well, the enhanced, if, the upgrade, then they because give you a you know switch. why? I'll check because my Toyota that's it. now. The engine, the <laughs> engine, it might because be in that situation, the engine was built in the different factories, so they just build the same engine, just one after yeah, yeah, the other, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they just drop it in the vehicle, and it's the the assembler's job to decide, hey. Is this have air conditioning or not? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then the people with all the yeses, they get the switch. And the people with the noes, yeah, we don't get a switch. But it's mechanically, it's all there. I mean, it's, this is, it's all there. This has been going on since probably the 70s or 80s. Yeah. Just nobody's noticed it until now because it's like, oh, my God, like software. We're so used to having all the options. And now they're like, nah, oh, it's a, it's a, It's things. where you draw the line. You know, I... I helped a friend many years ago. We pulled apart a 1947 Cadillac. And 1947 was the first car with AC as an option. Post-war. But what, what you didn't realize was every single 1947 Cadillac had the trunking for the AC yeah. already fitted mm-hmm. in the roof. The trunking was in. The yeah. box in the back was in for the What's AC because it had front and rear a- AC. It's because it's cheaper to manufacture. There one, you go. One set of tooling there to you build go. that component. And it, all the trunking was in there. Yeah. I mean, it was like it was specced out for AC. Yeah. It just didn't have the yeah. AC parts because it was cheaper to make that because, way. Because, again, on the manufacturer, at the end of the day, it is cheaper for them to build one set of tooling to make Oh, called the so, trunk but, of but, but, but that benefits they, the manufacturer. Manufacture. So yes. I want to I want to ask Mike one more question because I know it's late for him. Thank you for sticking with us, Mike. There's been so much of the consumers have negative response to these paying for enhancements, even though we've got precedents throughout uh, history and and different industries. Why do you think people respond so negatively to this? I think it's it's I think largely what we've been saying here and Bagel in particular, like <laughs> your points, I, I largely agree. If if this stuff is coming here, if the the perception is that I'm being charged for things I already paid for. Um I'm not necessarily saving money. It, you know, it doesn't appear that way to the consumer because we don't necessarily know any better. We can make right. a lot of assumptions about it. Um and it seems clearly that's probably the case. Um but I that that's why it bothers me even if I understand there's good reasons. And I think I think you can probably look to the last 10, 20 years of cell phones to look at what features used to be mm-hmm. behind a paywall that you don't have to pay for anymore. Like I remember when I couldn't make my phone a mobile hotspot and now mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I, it would tell me I have not paid for this with my subscriber and now it doesn't ask me that anymore. And it, it just works. Um, and to tie this back to right to repair, you know, if I, Take off the AMA hat and put the tinfoil hat on. Plug-in electronic diagnostic tool that your dealer has is what they use to unlock some of these features on, you know, in the KTM ah, case. Right. Now, if I have uh, if it's available to me, you know, they're going to have to figure out a way to block out those things because I'm not paying for them if they're going to continue to do this. So that might be another reason to block access to some of these. Uh, Oh, see what these he did diagnostic there? tools because they're the ones they use to make their money on that end. And that may or, be the case, it may not, but it, it seems or, probable. Or on the flip side, maybe that's a reason why they shouldn't even have these paywalls in the first place to make those diagnostic tools available to everybody so that everybody can diagnose their bikes and work on them. And yeah. I think to a lot of the points we've been making throughout this, the knowing you have the equipment there whether it's the you know it's the battery capacity performance or the quick shifter that the this just the electronic function is turned off 
and how much money it costs is an incentive for a third party to make a, a workaround that may not work, but consumers right. may try. So there's, there's by block putting that wall there, you're encouraging people to climb over it. And that may be very difficult to do, but somebody will eventually figure it out. And maybe they'll only have to figure it out. Um, and I think that's why having access to the right information and first right to repair is, is very good for the consumer because otherwise you're going to have to be working with, you know, incomplete picture at best. Um, and I think this, this new model, we certainly haven't seen the end of it. And I think we'll, uh, manufacturer will continue to innovate. I think, yes. and, uh, right. like, like we've said here, the market's going to decide and, one way. Or the and, other. And, and at least this is my opinion. Like I, I feel like, okay, if a manufacturer is going to manufacture a product, they're going to sell it to you. Once they sell it to you, it's fair game. You know, it's like, look, we sold it to you. Whatever you want to do with it, it's not our problem. We're not liable for anything you do with it. If it's dumb, it's risky. It's Again, we sold it. We just built it. We're not liable for what you did with it. So, like, that's why I, I'm a firm believer in right to repair. Like, you you bought the piece of equipment. You want to work on it? Not our problem. But don't expect, don't expect us as a manufacturer to come back and fix it for you if you screwed it up. That's really what it should and, be. Well, sure. But then it becomes hard because each bike you buy does have a warranty. And right. Well, and the, but there's but there's limitations to this warranty. So like, oh, absolutely. There's there's, there's an yeah. industrial piece of equipment that I work with, and it's notoriously funny about this because like, if you call this company and you ask them how do I do this, and the first question they ask, this is a German company. The first question they ask you, have you read the the service manual? Oh no. Well, go read the manual and then call us back. Yeah. Okay, so you go read the manual, and then why did they tell you to do this? Because in the manual, you bought this equipment. That manual is in a complete 100% teardown manual. They'll sell you the parts for it. They'll do all this. Everything in that manual is there to fix it, repair it, rebuild it. Why, why can't every other vehicle be like that? So just buy it, you own yep. it, that's it. Now, if you screw it up, we'll sell you the parts. We ain't going to fix what you screwed up, though, and that's what it is. So, yep. Mike, thank you for bringing it back around to the right to repair. And that's why I said at the beginning, they're two separate subjects, right. but they are related. Um, and, and I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your opinion. And if I can just put in, Mike brought up a very valid point, which I don't think any of us have actually considered. When it comes to unlocking these features, mm -hmm. maybe in five or six years or even less time than that, the way things are going, there's going to be this vibrant aftermarket pirate stuff yeah. that you can actually just like with heated grips you can buy the genuine heated grips or you can buy cheap knockoffs well it's the same with the unlocking the software you can buy the genuine zero software at 193 dollars or there's this pirate software that maybe not quite as good but it'll get the job done yeah. at 50 bucks plug it in boom you've got your and heated grips and what if you figure out how to hack it for free? Will they, there you will go. They brick, I mean, if you've got your bike, then if you've got that skill, there you go. Right. So, Mike, before you go, I just wanted to ask you one more question: Are there any secret projects you're working on for the AMA you can share with us? Um, let me pull up a couple <laughs> pictures. Um, <laughs> I was I got a chance to tour some um, automated vehicle testing facility, um, which the actual the, cool. the testing ground is not all that interesting. Um, and it's not exactly the most interesting to look at, but I got to see a demonstration of Ooh. 
this goofy oh. thing. Oh, which, uh, he's showing us a picture ooh. of a, a bike in a. It yeah. is. Looks top it's secret. basically a crash test dummy motorcycle. So it's a oh. foam motorcycle that's on a remote control skateboard, essentially. <laughs> uh, wow. So if you're going to oh, test how well. Sounds like good for AMA well, uh, vintage days. I'm following. Yeah, if uh, automated vehicles, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. your adaptive cruise control, uh, automatic emergency braking. If you want to know how well those see something, you need the target. You're this right. This is the uh, motorcycle target. Uh, my dad worked worked oh. for NHTSA growing up, so tra- crash and test the, dummies exactly. and all that. We had the NHTSA safety vehicle at my house, the the, the legendary one from the 70s. Um, and I've seen so many cars being crashed for safety features, but I've never seen motorcycle set up like that. So is this also to test like gear and stuff like that? No, this is to test cars. This it, is, it is this the way to, to test crash avoidance. Yes. Oh, because cars. of all the people being run over by Teslas. <laughs> yes. Or motorcycles. And so they, they've yes. had this for like essentially a fake car forever for yeah, quite yeah, a long yeah. time. Because they need to be able to test something and not ruin both vehicles at the same time. So they have this ah. thing that they can hit, can blow apart into a handful of pieces, reassemble and redo the test, um, and they have one for motorcycles now. It's been around, and this is just one I happened to see. And interesting. Where was this in Ohio? Where was this? It's a um, this was at a um, uh, kind of a conference of automotive testing and sensors, um, which is way beyond um, beyond me. But this was just one thing that was there. It was done in Michigan. This one particularly oh, okay. is built um, by some folks in Southern California. Um, it's not the only one out there, but there's all these little things that really matter for radar um, in particular. And one of the things that's really important is the wheels on this fake motorcycle have to spin the same speed the motorcycle mm. is going. Ah, uh, yeah. For accurate radar return. But of course, the, those wheels are foam and not actually not actually working. But they have a little fin on them that makes contact with the road that will get them to move to have an accurate uh, radar feedback. Okay. Um, and if we want to do the kind of testing to make sure the Teslas, the GM Super Cruise, all those other things see us, they need to be testing, and they need to be testing with something that's safe to test with, and that is it. And that's I know, I, I know, this is something you guys have been working on the the, the, the awareness of the cars. This has been a big topic, so that's well, awesome. Yeah, wasn't a dude just killed out in the Midwest somewhere it's uh, with a one. Tesla? Yeah, we came up on him in a fast lane. Is that what happened? So did they get to the bottom of that? Uh, so what's happening is there are motorcycles in the lane and a Tesla doesn't recognize it and it comes up behind it and just runs, runs them yeah. over. Now, Jeez. what I, when I looked into it, um, there's a couple things. One, um, uh, I heard that they stopped putting the LIDAR into the Teslas because they believe that the algorithm in the camera was good enough to identify everything. I would say oh, that man. they never had the LIDAR in the radar. Okay. radar. Elon has come out and said he does not believe LIDAR is necessary yeah, for these things. They've never, they they've never had the radar. Okay, they and, didn't have and, it. I, I don't wow. want to speak I thought the earlier official. ones. I thought earlier no, ones did. No, they, they never had LIDAR and just recently Tesla announced that they're removing the ultrasonic sensors. So it's the okay. little sensors that are about the size of a quarter in the bumpers because the camera algorithm is being improved enough that they believe in that but also i've heard that on some of these motorcycles there were things like uh i believe one of them had a the taillight removed and had a side mount license plate and taillight um or that the the lighting may not have been where the camera is is looking for it to pick it up so there i think there might have been some modifications to the bikes the 
from the three I'm aware of, yeah. um, one in Riverside, California, one in, I believe, Salt Lake City, and a third one in Florida, um, they were all, I believe, all cruisers. Yeah. All, it was dark out either very early morning or late at night um, on the expressway doing regular traffic. And I think the speculation is that those two rear low to the ground taillights on those specific models to a camera that is only learning by examples, millions and millions of examples of other cars sees those two, two small lights close together, close to the ground and doesn't realize that's a close motorcycle. Thinks it's a far car. Yes, exactly. uh, Yeah. That is wow. That's been my, and this is something too. And um, unfortunately, I've left finish days this year. On early morning on Sunday to get back to meet with the number two at the U.S. Department of Transportation, yeah. and it was about scenic byways, not about you say know, we were just a user of these nice roads we all like to preserve and things like that. But when Polly Trottenberg came in, it was we we're going to talk about motorcycle safety um, for half of this meeting that I didn't set up, so I felt a little guilty about that. But the Utah crash had happened the week before, and we talked yeah. about that for five or ten minutes with the number two person at USDOT, which. Talk is cheap, but that was a lot better than I think we've seen um, for multiple administrations. Great. Well, thank you for sharing your secret work. Happy to. <laughs> the secret styrofoam bike on a skateboard. I, I think that's a barrel race right there. There's a forthcoming story in the magazine about testing in general with this. We've been talking about the doom and gloom in these tragic stories for a long time. I kind of wanted yeah. to highlight some of the work that's being done to kind of correct these issues. So, yeah. We'll hopefully have an issue um, in the near next few months in the magazine that will uh, cover some of the work being done. Yeah, I might cool. give you a call to come on and talk about it. So thank yeah, you. Keep up the great you, work, Mike. And yeah, um, thank you. Uh, a, it's AMA dot org. No, American Motorcyclist uh, American Motorcyclist dot com. Um, we all say be a member. There's a lot of good reasons why you should be a member and support it because they are supporting us. Mike, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Happy to. Thanks All right. Clock on Sundays is pretty easy for me. And if anybody wants any, your listeners want to listen, reach out to the government relations department. Yes. Grassroots at ama-cycle.org. That reaches out, out to our department. Perfect. Great. Thanks Great. a lot, Mike. Cool. Keep fighting the good fight, yeah. Mike. Yeah. Cheers. We'll do. Thanks, Mike. Take care. So, um, that's, I mean, that's a lot of uh, controversy going on, but it's, the industry is oh, yeah. changing. It's controversial, mm-hmm. I told yeah. you. Controversial. You know what yes. isn't very controversial? What's L- that? Little Hondas. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, they are. Little Hondas. They are. And you, you know what also doesn't have a right to repair issue? <laughs> Little Hondas. Honda mini bikes. Honda mini bikes. <laughs> because they're ultimately the bikes that anyone can repair. And guess what time it is? Time to get ill. Time for Bagel's History Hole. It's time Part for a two. Mini, oh, a really? Mini bagel History Hole. Fantastic. Did you know that we did a Bagel's History Hole Part One? That I think yes. that was, you weren't here. That I, I wasn't here. Right. So Part Two. We almost had it when you were here. Part Two yeah. Bagel, because we you were talking about the Honda Cub. Yes. And then you wanted to start talking about the mini bikes, and I cut you yes. off because because the Honda Cub has, I mean, over its seventy year history has has reached its tentacles in all sorts of different areas of motorcycling. It's it's amazing just how much that engine design has has infiltrated the motor the motorsports in, industry across the world and and still influences it today. But today what I want to talk about is the mini bikes that Honda came out that were yeah. based on the Honda Cub engine. 
because uh, as as I mentioned previously, the Honda Honda Super Cub had started in 1958, if I remember correctly. That's and, right. Right, and shortly thereafter, Honda used that same engine to create a new series of mini bikes. That, mm. and I, I'm not sure if there really were were many mini bikes before then. Uh, Emma, can you? Uh, fill me in hmm. if there were any mini bikes prior to 1960. No, I mean the 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 mini bike genre prior to 1960, motorcycles were really seen as quite serious things. You know, they were serious sporting devices, and you know they were for grown-ups. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> you know, the whole mini bike thing was born out of baby boomers. You know, all these people who came back from the Second World War and started very, very young families. And suddenly there's all these kids running around. Oh, let's put kids on motorbikes. It'll be great. And so that was the whole where the whole mini bike genre started. And Honda were absolute pioneers with that. Yeah. And so so this all started back around 1960 or so. And where the the first mini bike that Honda developed is what became known as the monkey bike. Yeah, which the is monkey bike. A, a super, super tiny 50cc motorcycle. Now, the original bike that was known as the monkey bike was first developed as a carnival ride for an amusement park in Japan, believe it or not. So so essentially, Honda developed these little tiny miniature motorcycles to use on this carnival ride. And wow. I, I don't know the details of the carnival ride. I don't know if they were like fixed to something or if they were, you could just ride them around, oh, you know, free. I, I have a feeling they were probably fixed to some sort of thing and you could like, you know, ride them and put them along. Emma, I'm looking up at a model up on the wall here. When did the Rupp Roadster come out? Is that? Oh, the Rupp, the Rupp. No, that's late 60s. Oh, okay. Then. Yeah, that's right, right around yeah. 69, 70. Yeah. So, right. So, so around 1960, uh, Honda was, I believe, the first ones to come out with a a proper mini bike as as the monkey bike. Now, now this this amusement park bike uh, was was really just kind of a novelty, but but people just kind of loved it. And and the the monkey bike moniker came about because when full-grown people would sit on this little tiny miniature motorcycle. <laughs> they looked like some sort of, you know, gigantic <laughs> monkey sitting on top of a tiny bike. And so people called these little monkey bikes. And that's that's where the name started from, from this carnival ride. Uh, and because people, I guess the reaction to this carnival ride was was so enthusiastic, Honda decided, you know what? Let's make this an actual bike that people can buy. Mm. So in 1961, they came out with the first official monkey bike for for sale. That was the called the CZ100. Now this bike had five inch wheels. It what? is that small. <laughs> five inch wheels. <laughs> well, hold on. Well, you, 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 the, the rims were five Funny. inches, but had big thick the tires. Yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, they had like you know three point five series <laughs> tires or something like that, but, but five inch diameter rims. <laughs> so these are tiny, tiny, tiny wheels on this tiny little bike. Uh, they also had folding handlebars where there's a little mm-hmm. uh, like a, a, a nut on the back that you can unscrew with your hand, and you push the bars forward uh, on the the little screw shaft, 
And there's a little uh, notch on the, the, the triple yeah. tree where these handlebars have a notch that fits inside of. So when you unscrew it and push it forward, you can swing the handlebars down to the side and then pull them back in and screw them in with the bars in the down position so that you can take this little miniature motorbike and put it in the trunk of your yes. car or store it like in yes. your RV yes. or put it on your boat Ooh. and you can take it wherever you go. And that was sort of the idea behind this little mini bike is that this is the ultimately portable transportation that you can take anywhere you need to go. So, um, so what they did was they, they mounted the, the, the 50 CC super cub engine to a, a tiny lightweight, uh, thin tube steel frame that was a, a hardtail design. Um, it did have lights and a speedo. And uh, the very first model came with a, a flat sort of plastic tank that went in front of the seat uh, that didn't quite look like a motorcycle tank. I have a uh, question. Yes. Yeah, Were these bikes being designed for children or adults at this point? Um, you know, at this point, mm -hmm. I think they were designed for adults. Okay. Because they were they were designed to be a a very portable, very easy to use miniature motorcycle that you could use in situations where you couldn't fit a full-size motorcycle. Hmm. And and maybe it was but, one where like as an adult you felt, "Oh, I'm going to buy it for the kid knowing you're going to ride it 80% <laughs> of the I'm time." Sure, I am sure that some people did, you know, buy it for kids because it is obviously kid size. Right. So, uh but but originally it was it was marketed towards towards adults, but obviously, you know, there was a there was a big kid market there that grew and and very quickly I'm sure that caught on. Um but the uh, that very that flat plastic tank didn't last very long, and within about a year or so, they had replaced it with a more motorcycle typical uh, tank that had uh, uh, was painted red with chrome panels on the sides and uh, and black rubber knee pads uh, that made it look a little bit more like a motorcycle. And that was basically the original monkey design that carried on for several years. Um, uh, the uh, the 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 bike was renamed in 1968 to the Z50A, and uh, they also put some upgrades on the bike at the same time. They upgraded the wheels from five inches to eight inches. Uh, it was still a hardtail, uh, but at that uh, when they changed that model designation, they also removed the lights and speedo, uh, where they kind of were were planning this to be more of an off-road bike. Um, but because it, there there was enough demand for this bike to be ridden on the roads, uh, people wanted that light, uh, mm -hmm. the headlight and taillight. So eventually they did add that back. But the speedo uh, did remain remain left off of the monkey monkey from uh, from then on. You know, it makes me realize <clears throat> these bikes, like you know, the Trail Seventy, you could either get it with lights and and turn signals mm -hmm. or without. Yeah. How would you feel if it came with those lights, but you had to pay extra? To, oh God! <laughs> to to turn them on. Lock. Exactly. I'd be so mad. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here, we're just so, gonna install a fuse for you, and it's good to go. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then the, the next upgrade to the monkey bike was in 1972, when uh, the Z50A got uh, a soft tail rear suspension added. Uh, and this made the bike uh, ultimately more use, useful as an actual motorcycle so that you weren't just, you know, bouncing around on a hardtail all the time on your little tiny tires. Uh, but then in 1979, uh, Good year the, for bikes. Yeah, the monkey line had sort of a split 
where the monkey bike was discontinued in the U.S., um, but the original monkey did continue in Europe as a Z50J, uh, but they, they used they put a different tank on that was sort of a more rounder bulbous tank. <laughs> but in the U.S. market, they changed the the monkey bike to what became the Z50R, which was a the race, true race version. Right. Right, which is a true mini <laughs> dirt bike. And now this is when Honda really started going after the youth market because this was a bike that was that was definitively geared towards kids to get them into off-road motorcycle riding. So so the the evolution of this monkey bike, it's kind of started off as this novelty and and sort of like a real niche mini bike, but then slowly morphed into what would become the the starter bike for little aspiring dirt riders to use uh, in 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 getting their their uh, getting their feet off the ground and and uh, running on two wheels. So that uh, that was sort of the the history of the uh, the monkey bike. Um, there. Sorry, I've lost my spot here. Uh-oh. There, there were a um, a couple of additional changes that they they made. Uh, there was also a an X XR fifty R mini dirt bike that came out in two thousand one. That was the next evolution of the monkey bike. But that by that point, it was a total just <laughs> mini dirt bike for for kids. And then the last note on the monkey that I wanted to mention is that the 2019 Monkey 125, yeah, that was the retro model that Honda came out with, is not an actual monkey bike. Wait, what? The 2019 Monkey is a a repackaged Grom. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, the Monkey a, to qualify a as a monkey, it has to be a fifty. Well, well, it, it's it it doesn't have the original Monkey tube frame. It doesn't have mm. the the Cub style engine. Uh, it. It, this basically was a Grom that was redesigned to look like a monkey bike. Yeah, but I completely so, 100% support that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not saying that there's any problem with that. I think it's a You're just it's calling a great, it, you're calling them out. You're saying it's a fake I'm, monkey. I'm calling them out. I'm saying it's it's not a continuation a of the same mo- DNA. It's not a real monkey. But, what are you doing? But, it, but it, is, it is a lovely retro It's a cheeky monkey. It's a <laughs> cheeky monkey. Are you a cheeky monkey? Yeah, yeah. It's a 125, so you know it's a cheeky, cheeky monkey. Oh, it's a cheeky monkey. So, so that's the history of the monkey line. But that is not the only mini bike that Honda made. But I'm going to stop you there. Yes. Oh, what? You? I know. I'm oh. sorry, Bagel. We're going to have to chop this up. Oh, what? oh man. Pop but, three. But, but right. I want you to go from this into the email that I sent you. You cheeky oh, yes. monkey. Because it is related. <laughs> monkey, monkey. All right. He's a cheeky monkey. He really yes. is. You know. <clears throat> so I, I, I didn't know that the, the monkey ran for that for that long. All from that same 50cc. And oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That came bike, from... Too. The original uh, yep. cub. That's Excellent. pretty interesting. Would you like to know who else is a cheeky monkey? Who's a cheeky monkey? <laughs> Who's a cheeky monkey? Haley Bell. Haley Bell. Bell's a cheeky oh, monkey. Northern monkey. She's a little northern monkey. She's very cheeky. All right, Bagel, you got that email? All right. So I, I have this email here from Eli Bowers. Hey, Eli. And uh, Eli writes... Hello, Misfits. I thoroughly enjoyed Bagel's se- segment on the Honda C- Super Cub from a few episodes ago. Super Cub? Super. I, 
I picked up a one, picked up one a few years ago for $400 with a seized engine. Yes. Who parks a bike without a spark plug? Oh. Well, I'll tell you, owner, cheeky monkeys. That's who? <laughs> yes, and the previous owner of my Hankel Tourist did, too. <laughs> he was a cheeky monkey and all. Yes, he was. A German cheeky monkey. All right, settle down, Emma. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. So he says, uh, it is a 1969 CM91, which has a 90cc engine, a six-volt electrical system, and a three-speed semi-automatic transmission, one up, two down. Mm -hmm. After a top-end rebuild, among other things, it runs pretty well and and still has a great barn patina. For the Super Cub enthusiasts out there, Honda released the CM91 alongside the CM90 in the mid-60s. The difference being the CM90 had a pushrod actuated valve system and the CM91 had an overhead cam. (laughs) I plan on taking this bike on some longer trips. Perhaps some day trips at first and and then moving up to a scooter cannonball (laughs) if the route and timing works out. Whoa, on a 1969... 50cc. Yes. Super Cub. Across town. That's a long trip for that. No. So cannonballs across country. Yeah. After all, the bike has a 78% handicap and decent top speed, (laughs) about 60 miles per hour. Do it, man. That's awesome. My, My question is this. I hear mostly about the accolades and reliability of these bikes, but what are the mechanical weaknesses? Are there any inherent faults to its design? What upgrades do you recommend, if any, to prevent a breakdown or make the bike more rideable for long trips? Thanks, Eli from Michigan. Emma, do you know the answer to that question? Oh, I mean, there's so many. Um, as with any any bike with um, a very, very small oil capacity, I mean, oil is absolutely the lifeblood of this engine. So change it often. Um, it's yes. got a centrifugal um, oil filter, which lives behind the clutch, unfortunately. So actually, inside we the clutch, yeah, it lives within the clutch, and you don't have to yeah. completely dismantle the clutch to get to it. But you have to take the casing off. It's got yeah. a screen that's in there as well. Um, I'm looking at the Honda book, and I'll tell you what: according to the Honda Bible, the CM90 was made from 1966 to 1969. Here's the thing, though. It says it's overhead cam. Oh, but his, his is a CM91. Yeah, yeah CM91. No, it says CM91. Yeah. Yeah, CM91, yeah. Honda 90, CM91, 66 to 69, overhead cam. Yep. So can you turn that into a 12-volt system? No, it'd be it'd be quite hard to. to do a cannibal on a 6-volt 69 bike your lights are gonna suck so you well, i think you need to come up with a better lighting system. i mean the very late ones had 12 volts but i'm not sure whether you'd well, be able to squeeze but them. i'm and, and and this is something that i i still need to look into but i'm pretty sure that there are a lot of 12 volt conversion systems because a lot of the lifan engines that are basically just clones of the of the cub engines uh they're all they're all 12 12 volts these days so that would be my um, recommendation yeah, so I'm pretty sure that you can find, you know, some 12 volt upgrade systems. The question is to find the right one for that engine. It might take some research and, and digging to find the right 
well, right one, but for doing but something like do the it. cannonball, I mean, because bagel, but, you ride during at night, yes, at, during the yes. dark, yeah, right. You need to have good light for sure, yeah. Um, especially if you're riding on a smaller bike when you're going to be taking longer time to get to get in in the day. Um, the one of the other things about the uh, twelve volt conversion is that twelve volt batteries are shaped differently from six volt batteries for motorcycles, mm. and now I I, I have. I've only just scratched the surface on this so far because this is something that I'm looking into for my own bikes is how to convert it to a 12 volt. And especially when you have this little square shaped uh, section inside the frame where you were supposed to sit, fit a six volt battery in, how do you fit a longer rectangle shaped 12 volt battery in there? Or do yeah. you have to mount that? Well, I mean, the, the answer, somehow? much as I hate to admit it, because I don't actually approve of them in bikes is a lithium ion. The, right, and Showrite does make lithium ions that will, will, well, will work with these. Is, but they're also a different size, though. That's the problem. I mean, of all bikes, though, that would probably be okay with a lithium ion, a vintage Honda yeah, small a, bike, oh, yeah. you know, because it'd be I a low so draw mm -hmm. and yeah. it would be a low charge. Exactly. Because, you know, lithium ion batteries, we know, don't like changing volts quickly. And it's... It's very simple. It's very straightforward. It's it's you know so it's providing a do you think, simple. Do you think trickle. he needs to take some pistons with him? Some I don't know. No, I think he just needs uh, to take a plentiful supply of clean okay. oil and just take it easy and understand that the top speed of that bike is probably fifty miles an hour. So his cruising speed, his cruising speed is probably going to be about forty-five. Right. And just yeah. you know. And and but with any cannonball prep, you know you're going to need to bring tools. You're going to need to bring spare parts. Um, you're going to need, especially on this bike, you're going to need to make sure your load is as light as possible because and this is a bike that's not going to be able to carry a lot of weight. Tubes, bring tubes. Tubes, yeah, tubes are important. And because hope. finding those on the road is not. <laughs> a lot of hope. I think Jim's got the most important one. Tubes. Well, no, I'm looking at this bike. It's got lovely patina. It's well, fantastic. Am I now? I need you to put that sheet of paper down. Pick up the other one. No, I'm going to read this one because this is from a very thank dear you, friend thank of you, mine. Eli. I hope we helped. Um, this is this is from Bruce Philip mm -hmm. and Bruce Philip Philip Philip. Ah, yes. Um, yes. It, I beg your pardon. Yes, it is Philip. Um, yes. And Bruce did an interview with me on this motorcycle yes. life. He has a yes, wonderful yes. podcast. Yes. Uh, lovely gentleman. Anyway. Bruce says, just listen to your couple's therapy episode. And he thought it was hilarious. <laughs> you might be giving up on that 890 too easily, Liza. Mm. Just finish finishing my third season on a 790 adventure, and it checks more of your particular boxes than your colleagues gave it credit for. Mm. If you get tempted again and want to hear the good and the bad about that bike, hit me up. Bruce. Well, um, isn't the 790 a little more sporty? Um, little... I've, I've been seeing a lot of 790s too. I want to try one out and see. Are you going to? Yeah, I want to. I want to try yeah. one out. Is it um, so he, he also sent a, a PS along. Good. He said um, concerning the Africa Twin. PS. Doubling down when the love is gone is always a mistake. I know because the last time I did that, it cost me a house. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, it's like it's like counseling. Just yeah, skip just... the counseling and pay the lawyer. Uh, <laughs> which actually, you owe me for that 
cat that couples session, Liza. <laughs> you too, Africa twin. Um, I have an update on that. I'm isn't that oh. a thruples session at this point? Though? <laughs> well, here's the thing. You didn't every have time, anything good to say about that bike today. But every time I walk in, I, I, I'll be honest, I'm attracted to that bike. It's Captain America. <laughs> I am motor. I mean, it is a little motosexual. I love oh, looking Corbin's, at Corbin's it more seat. than I like riding it. Is that weird? Oh, no. Um, well, well, your I triples mean, like that, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your Yamaha. Um, it's... I get the same thing, but I, 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 I ride him whenever I go in the garage and I see Rufus. I'm, like, I'm just... Oh God, that thing is beautiful. Oh, I know. Um, you know, you really can think a bike is the greatest looking thing. I, the difference is I love riding Rufus. You've kind of fallen out of love with riding Africa Twin. I Pakistan mean, did it, I'm telling you. Those little <laughs> bikes, you know, shifting we'll 10,000 times a day. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm having to really... Dig down deep and, and, and make a hard decision. But yeah. I haven't listed it for sale. It's not that easy for me to cut the ties because it's a beautiful bike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really is. And it is a very capable bike if I was just going to do the things it's capable of doing. Anyway, stay tuned. I'm sure this will be a long, do you re- drawn do you, out. Do you remember that song, By the Time I Get to Phoenix? No. No, it, it was a, yeah, it's a very famous song about oh, a guy who's going through a breakup and he's Can leaving. Can you hum a couple bars? No, no, no. But I was I was going to say it could apply in your case by the time I get to Hunza. We'll see, we'll see. Well, don't throw out the cruiser idea either. I, I think that's kind of an interesting Oh, Liza on a cruiser. I, she mentioned it. Mm. So I hey, I tell you what. Really? I got a thing for Dyna Bros, man. I want to be a Dyna Bro. Just well, do I got it. a Dyna. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> You know I, you want to. Everybody wants know. you to do it. Just make it happen. I tell you what. So l- let me tell you something about diners because I wasn't expecting to enjoy. <laughs> she has her arms crossed. No, I wasn't <laughs> expecting to enjoy that bike as much as I have been. They're great. They really are. Okay. See. And I mean, it will. It will. It will scratch an itch for you. Whether it's the itch you want scratching, I don't know, but it will. Or I can just get some ointment for that. Yeah, some yeah. oink, oinkment. Because yeah. it's Dinosaur. a hog, you see. Yeah. Yes. Well, we'll see. Well, beautiful we'll paint, see. though. The tank is beautiful. <laughs> some di- some dinosaur. Dinosaur. Oh, good one. Um, hey, Patrick, thank you for joining us. And, oh, thank and you for having me on. Stumpy John is still out of town. Um, is he playing Florida Man right now? He is playing Florida yeah, Man. Right I think now. he's got. I think he's got fifteen of his sixty days left. So <laughs> I, I hope he's not without the option. <laughs> well, he sent us a very cute photo today. I, I didn't get to see it, Jim. Uh, he's, Remember the rest he's, of the cell he's block. Back, <laughs> he's <laughs> the back. work release program. <laughs> he's back home with his family. Blade. And he found kidding, a, a newspaper article oh. um, with a picture of little John Liotti, aged four, sits astride his mini bike, trying for all the world to act like his father, who also rides motorcycles and does some racing. That's really cool. I don't nice. know. Do you know what that is? He's four years old. Yeah. And he's got his little helmet on and on his little bike. So Yeah. Is it a Honda? <clears throat> I don't know what it is. No, I think it's Probably a little Italian. Oh. But he, I've seen cool. him pull that expression now, <laughs> even now. Yeah, every time he gets on a bike, he makes that face. Yeah, um, that's, 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 that's great. Well that's done. the John face. All right, let's go. So Rev Sisters Film Festival. Yes. Go check it yeah. out, revsisters.com. And uh, 
come to our 500th episode recording December 3rd. Yes. Go to motorcyclesandmisfits.com. Yes. And click on the link. Yes. For the 500th episode. Yes. And uh, support the AMA. Be a member of the AMA. Yes. Bottom line. And it's, it's I've important. got... Um, they're, doing, they're doing really important did stuff. Did you release a lot of spots on the Ask Miss Emma? Because I knew. Oh, I have had lots yeah, of Yeah, you've inquiries. got some answering to do. I got some splaining to do. Um, you do. I got some Emma splaining to do. Yeah. Um, One last got, plug yeah. for your uh, for the for the the big day, the five hundredth episode is. If you are coming to town, come to town for a couple of days. If you're coming from out of town and you're bringing family, yeah, stay in town. Santa Cruz is a lot of fun. Hopefully, the weather cooperates. But like after the show, we'll be right downtown so we can spill out, check out downtown, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So I'd encourage you to come for a few days, rent a bike, have a good time. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's it. And uh, go check out the uh, the motor, this Motorcycle Life Bruce Phillips uh, show. Um, big thanks to everyone, including our Patreon supporters. Oh, you got one? I got one more quick thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, me and Craig are going to be down in the desert, Ooh. not this coming week, but the following week. So a week from this Monday, down in um, Lucerne Valley, so that's south of Barstow, where they do King So the are you inviting people to come, or are you warning them that there might be a couple naked guys All in the, the above. Well, there'll, be some, there'll be some excitement, for sure. And Remember lighting we, things on fire. Last time we had the, the, was it the jizz hatchet? I think it was. Oh, God, God almighty. Oh, yeah. And that's Jesus. enough of that. Okay. Um, in the dark. But anyway, meet us out in the desert week after next, if you want to and, come down. Yeah, and if you want to meet Miss Emma, I will be down in the desert. So on the third, join me for trifle and pudding. <laughs> <laughs> you guys alright Jim hmm? you made it to the end of the show is I, it these, the chair is the it the chair the chair's magic yes these chairs yes. are awesome yes it worked it's cheeky that monkey that was my ploy cheeky All right. <laughs> comfortable cheeky monkey okay thank you everybody that. let's get out of here this is Liza cheeky monkey what's up Poutine Patrick <laughs> just Jim Lego. <laughs> <laughs> And let's get out of here. Cool, 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 cool. cool. <laughs>